I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm your host, Sri Krishna Upadhyaya. And my guest today is Simran Sirur, who works as a journalist with the digital media outlet, The Print. Welcome to ATP, Simran. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Also, Simran, I understand that uh, last month you were in Egypt and your assignment was to cover the ongoings at the 27th Convention of Parties of the UNFCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I understand you had a splendid experience. So I want to know from you, how was your uh, overall experience covering the COP27 in Egypt? What were the sort of learnings that you brought home from this reporting assignment? And maybe you can even begin by telling us, you know, what COP27 is and why was it significant and why does it matter in our fight against climate change? Okay, that's a good place to start. So, I mean, my experience was great. It was my first COP being there physically. I'd gone for just the second week, but I'd been following it, you know, since it started. So it was good to like be in the thick of things and, you know, there was a lot of buzz. Apparently the most people had attended this year. So lots of really good atmosphere to be a part of. The COP essentially is, it's the for it's an international forum. It's a, a meeting that happens every year in different member states. So this year it happened in Egypt. And it's a conference that essentially is really important because it's where global climate policy and action are kind of decided and the details of how that action will be implemented are worked out. This is obviously important because climate change is accelerating right now where, you know, we're already at 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels of global heating. So essentially why that's worrying is because even at 1.1 degrees, we're already seeing ecosystems kind of disintegrating and we're seeing our monsoon seasons change. We're seeing more cyclones, more flooding all of those things. And currently, all projections say that we are on our way to at least 2.3 degrees of warming by the end of the century. So essentially, the COP is a place to like come and try to... Since the Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015, there's been an effort in the COPs to try and come up with ways in which to act in a way that you know we limit global warming to well below 2 degrees in order to avoid climate catastrophe. So essentially, that's why it's important and that's why it takes place. Right. So, you know, like, especially in the media, there is a lot of coverage given to climate change deniers, right? And there is this loud constituency in almost every country, I assume, which speaks out against uh, climate change and says that it need not be such an important determinant in our policy going forward. But it is sort of astonishing as well as reassuring for me that over 190 countries participate in this conference every year, right? I think even the Paris Convention was firmed up by all the parties present at the COP, right? So what is sort of your take? What are your views on this sort of like international consensus that has been built in COPs? So I think that the lobby of climate deniers is kind of maybe not as loud as it once was because it's kind of a reality that I think in today's world you can't really deny. 
But the consensus-based thing is interesting because, you know, there's a lot of criticism that the cops, even though they're considered the most important forum for climate policy discussions, global implementation of policy, they're very, very incremental and slow because every single decision has to be agreed upon by all parties. And that's different countries with varying interests, different capabilities, different, you know, means. So every single outcome is deeply, deeply negotiated. Every single word of every single text is argued over and over and over again until it's agreed upon by everybody, which is also why movement at each COPS has been slow. And a lot of people say that there's not enough being done even at the COPS, to halt global warming and to limit global warming to well below two degrees. So yeah, that's the overall picture. Yeah, and also I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit more about your experience as a reporter covering this event, right? So how was that like? Like, did you interact with other reporters from different countries? Did you get to sort of like exchange views on the topic, maybe understand a little bit more about how the media sort of portrays climate change and its reporting across the world? So it was extremely, extremely hectic. I think that if I had gone in the first week, I maybe would have had a little bit more time to like, Talk to, I think people would have been a little bit more relaxed also and had the time to, you know, talk and exchange views and all of that kind of thing. But in the second week, which is the week that I had attended, all of the negotiations were really heating up. So it was like extremely hectic, many, many things going on, running from one and, and the media center in. So it's a huge venue. OK, like really, really big. And they've kept the media center, which is essentially where all the journalists go to file their stories and keep all of their stuff and all of that is right at the end, you know, so walking to the place where the negotiations are happening or to a press conference room is like, it's a more than a kilometer walk, you know, it takes at least 10 minutes to reach from one place to another because that's how large the venue was. So there was a lot of running up and down from one place to another, quickly filing a story as, you know, as things unfolded. So, yeah, that was what my experience was like. And especially, I mean, the lead up to the agreement, the lead up to the, you know, it spilled over two days extra because the negotiations were just so intense over the last week. And that experience especially was pretty crazy. Everybody had to stay overnight at the venue because the closing plenary started at 4 a.m. So people were sleeping on the couches, negotiators were sleeping wherever they could. It was like just sleeplessness. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, think about it, right? Huh? But it does sound like a lot of fun when you think back. It was fun, for sure. I mean, especially if you're a bit of a climate nerd, then it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. So moving on, I think although this COP27 ended last month, I think now is sort of a good time to take stock of whatever went down and also sort of look into the future uh, as far as, you know, course of action going ahead is concerned. So reading your reporting from COP27, I understand that there were around three contentious sticky points during these negotiations, right? And uh, the first of of these were uh, was the loss and damage one. 
The second was facing down of fossil fuels. And uh, the third one was regarding the temperature rise goal, which is uh, setting a 1.5 degree Celsius goal for temperature increase as opposed to the existing 2 degrees Celsius. So I wanted to discuss each of these three things with you. So firstly, let's begin with uh, the negotiations around the loss and damage fund, right? And I understand there was a lot of drama. I think some of the sleepless nights that you mentioned were also associated with this, I would guess. But ultimately, an agreement was reached and this was significant. So could you take us through the story here and tell us, you know, what the final outcome of loss and damage fund was? Yeah, so, you know, establishing this loss and damage fund was kind of seen as the litmus test for the success of this COP. Because it was, you know, it's being held in a developing country, it's an Africa COP. So there was an interest, even though the presidency is a neutral body, there was an interest to keep this on the agenda and to have it even discussed in talks. So even before the negotiations started, they have these preparatory talks and the preparatory talks kind of mirrored the end of the actual end of the COP where you have like discussions going on through the night. So even before the COP began, these preparatory talks were about what to include on the COP agenda and what not to include on the COP agenda. And there were intense negotiations through the pre-preparatory talks to include the loss and damage fund. So ultimately, unity by the G77 group of developing countries, which is all the development, I mean, not all, but a lot of uh, over 100, you know, developing countries come together and push this agenda and manage to get it on to the agenda of the talks. So once they decided to agree to even talk about it through the COP, There were many, many efforts to kind of thwart that unity, especially by rich countries. The resistance, you know, to establish this fund was stemming from a, you know, having to dole out more money. Developed countries already owe developing countries a lot of money for climate action. And so if you establish a new fund, especially for the purposes of loss and damage, and loss and damage, by the way, refers to, you know, the destruction, unavoidable destruction arising from the effects of climate change. So this is devastation that we saw in Pakistan earlier this year would be a good example, the kind of flooding that they they saw. So developed countries have been kind of resisting establishing this fund ever since the 1990s because it would mean additional money. And they already owe developing countries about $100 billion, which they've still not managed to raise in climate finance, which would be for, you know, to help countries adapt to the effects of climate change or to help them take climate action to reduce the effects of climate change. That money still hasn't been raised. So there was a lot of the US, particularly in COP27, was a big obstructor to getting the fund established. The EU also made efforts to kind of what the G77 unity, they made a bunch of proposals in the middle for what the loss and damage fund should look like. They kind of wanted it to be, they wanted it to include private financing. They wanted, they also proposed something called a global shield, which was like a insurance mechanism. But all of this was rejected by developing countries because they said this is outside the UNFCCC framework. Developing countries also wanted other, sorry, developed countries, rich countries also wanted developing countries to pay for the loss and damage fund, which would again, you know, 
which again poorer countries said goes totally against the convention so those were the kinds of fights that we were seeing ultimately what resulted was the an agreement across the board to establish a loss and damage fund but that's about it there's still a lot more that needs to be decided you know the mechanisms who will pay what the donors will be all of that so that's kind of the story on the loss and damage fund hey thank you for that Actually, I have some more questions on loss and damage fund. But before I go to that, I sort of wanted to wrap up our discussion on the other two sticky points, which I mentioned earlier, right? So the second one, which is about phasing down the use of fossil fuels. I understand that India took a strong stance in favor of having this in the, the final document from the convention. But uh, this does not make its way into the final commitment, right? So yeah. what went wrong here? What is the story here? And do you think this omission is consequential or? are countries doing enough to sort of transition into renewable energy and so on and you don't think that this is such a consequential omission it is consequential because you know we are faced with such an existential crisis and fossil fuels have a big role to play in causing that kind of existential crisis right here's where india was coming from so early in discussions about the cover text which is kind of an overarching decision text a legal decision text that comes out of the cop india had proposed india said look all fossil fuels contribute to climate change not just one and india was saying this because in the cop 26 it was finally agreed that countries would phase phase down the unabated use of coal and they singled out coal or india viewed it as singling out coal and india as you know is a coal dependent country we we derive our energy security most of our energy mix comes from coal and so india's motivation for saying you know either mention all fossil fuels or don't mention any at all was coming from a place of was coming from a place of developed countries rich countries using fossil fuels like oil and gas but not wanting to kind of mention it in the agreement and instead focusing only on coal now coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel it does produce the largest emissions but india's motivation of you know saying that we should include all including oil and gas also comes from the fact that india contributed the least to historical emissions that are causing today's climate change so countries like the us the eu they they're responsible for a huge chunk of historical emissions that have caused climate change today and so india's sort of stance has been you what about you phasing down your own uh, fossil fuel consumption so the fact that it didn't make it into the text is consequential but there are also other nuances there like other developing countries didn't want to include you know naming of certain fossil fuels because they said like look you can't tell us how to use our resources we should just focus on reducing emissions at this point so i think that this will also make an appearance in future cops i mean this question is certainly going to come up later as well right and does that make sense yeah yeah thank you for that in fact i think this is the key takeaway from here is essentially there is a divergence in set of countries which is the developing countries on one side and the developed countries and this sort of dichotomy has played out across the different sort of issues and commitments that were raised at the 
Paris Convention as well as I agree the COP27. I think that is going to continue as long as that balance remains tilted in one direction or the other. So I wanted to quickly bring up the third contentious issue which was discussed at COP27 and that was about setting the goal, the climate goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius or rise in temperature by the end of the century above the pre-industrial levels. The Paris Agreement in 2015 had set a goal of 2 degrees Celsius with the commitment that uh, this will be in fact brought down to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But like you mentioned at the beginning, right now it seems like we're hitting 2.7 degrees Celsius uh, increase in the global temperature by the end of the century and we were nowhere close to keeping the 2 degrees Celsius goal that Paris Agreement sort of imposed on all the countries. So what is your take on this? How did the negotiation at the COP27 pan out? Is there sort of like an interplay between this goal and the loss and damages fund in the sense that if there is support to the countries facing loss and damage, financial support, will that help in reaching the 2 degree goal or 1.5 degree goal in the future? Okay. Yeah. So interesting question. The thing about the 1.5 degree goal is, so the Paris Agreement, the wording in the Paris Agreement is that the aim should be to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees and preferably 1.5 degrees to avoid, you know, climate catastrophe. At the COP26, there was an agreement to hold or to establish a mitigation work program and the mitigation work program was basically to, quote unquote, urgently scale up mitigation ambition through 2030. Climate mitigation essentially means, just for people listening, essentially means reducing carbon emissions or dealing with carbon emissions. So the 1.5, so developed countries, rich countries, through the COP27, this was the first time the mitigation work program was being discussed since it was established at the last COP. Developed countries, rich countries have been pushing to keep the focus on 1.5 degrees as opposed to 2 degrees, which, of course, I think everybody across the board agrees would be much better for the planet, much better for humanity, much better, you know, for our futures, but practically is much, much more difficult because the burden of acting on that, of acting to limit global warming to just 1.5 degrees is not evenly spread. So in today's world, when you have one point, when we've already reached 1.1 degrees, you know, of warming, developed countries like the US, the EU, like I said in our previous just five minutes ago, it's their historical emissions that are responsible in a large, large part for the 1.1 degrees of warming that we're seeing today. And you will see that, I mean, there are several studies that show that these countries have not acted adequately to cut their own emissions. So what essentially the tussle over here about 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is that essentially developing countries like India, like every other developing country basically, are saying that, you know, we have a right to whatever carbon budget is left. So the tussle about 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees essentially comes from how much of what's left of what's called the carbon budget, which is how much carbon is left to emit in order to comply with the Paris Agreement goal of well below 2 degrees. So countries like India, developing countries, are saying that if you change the benchmark from well below 2 degrees to 1.5 degrees, that reduces the carbon budget considerably. And that reduces 
our ability to develop and provide energy security to our people. Whereas developing developed countries, rich countries, are pushing on for this goal. Essentially, developing countries like India, like others, are saying that if you want us to reach 1.5 degrees, and if you want us to change that benchmark, then give us the money, and give us the technology, and give us the support that we need. But then again, richer countries have failed to provide, you know, adequate finance. They were supposed to mobilize a hundred billion dollars in climate finance by 2020. But they're going to be unable to do that before next year. And carbon removal technologies, which you know, which are very, which have an important role to play in limiting global warming, are still very much in development. So there are all of these issues surrounding that 1.5 versus 2 degree goal. Everybody agrees that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is obviously a much better scenario and situation. But the question is, where does the burden of that climate action fall? Who has the ability to, who's capable of reducing their emissions to that extent, and how should that be done? Those are the kinds of questions that you know kind of make this question a little more nuanced and difficult to answer. So, yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Samdin. So, at this point, we'll take a short break and we'll come back with more on the COP twenty-seven and the future goals of action. Welcome back to All Things Policy. Today we are in conversation with Simran Sirur from the Print about the COP twenty seven and the negotiations and the outcomes from the convention. So Simran, we spoke about the loss and damages fund earlier. So I wanted to pick a little bit more on that. So could you begin by telling us, you know, what exactly is it? Now there is an agreement that a fund will be set up. But how do you think the operationalization of this fund is going to play out? Will there be more opposition from US and the EU? And what do you think are the key constraints, sort of, in implementing this fund in the future? Okay, so about the loss and damage fund itself, I think a good place to start is what is the kind of existing climate finance that is, you know, around. So essentially, when it comes to dealing with climate change, there is money for. climate adaptation which is kind of actions for countries to prepare and also deal with the aftermath or the ongoing kind of the onset of climate change like for example making houses better insulated in terms of cold or keeping them or designing them in a way that's cool that's an example of adaptation there's also money allotted for mitigation which is like i said earlier actions that are aimed at reducing carbon emissions so that would be you know switching to renewable energy and you know carbon removal technologies those kinds of things the amount of climate finance that is required for us to take meaningful action to reduce you know global warming to 1.5 or well below 2 degrees is upwards of you know it's trillions of dollars per year and that kind of money is not being mobilized at the moment i know that i've said this before i'll say it again there was in 2009 this obligation this agreement was made that developed countries would put would mobilize 100 billion you know by 2020 for developing countries for them to mitigate and adapt to climate change but even this money hasn't yet been 
been mobilized. There's, I think, only about eighty eighty billion has been has been mobilized up to now. So there's still a lot left on that, and the hundred billion itself is dwarfed in terms of the needs in light of the needs that are actually required, which, as I said, goes into the trillions. So this demand for a loss and damage fund is essentially introducing a third track for climate finance, specifically for the purposes of dealing with the unavoidable destruction that arises from climate change. Because even at 1.1 degrees, we're seeing some effects of climate change that are becoming increasingly irreversible, that are becoming increasingly deadly, that are becoming increasingly unavoidable. And so developing countries who do face the brunt of climate change and who do face the impacts of climate change a lot more are saying that, look, now we need money to deal with this kind of thing so that we can rebuild. And so in that sense, it's a whole other animal. That is what the the loss and damage fund is for. It is for for situations like that when unavoidable destruction does, does come up. So on this fund, I have a simple question. Is there a number that we're talking of regards the size of this fund? No. So that is going to be one of the very big issues left to be worked out. So a lot of critics do say that, like, you know, it's, we, we shouldn't be celebrating the establishment of this fund yet because we actually know nothing about it. We don't know uh, how much, what the quantum of the fund will be, what the funding arrangements will be, who the donors to the fund will be the location of the fund, all of these questions are still, you know, will be taken forward in the future COPs. So as of now, the fund has been established, but all of these other questions still remain to be, you know, remain unknown as of now. Essentially, at at the end of the COP27, it was also agreed that they would set up a transitional committee, which would kind of make recommendations on what the operationalization of the loss and damage fund should be. So right now, those questions about how much, where, donors, etc. are not known. But this transitional committee will make recommendations to help answer some of those questions. Sure. Now, I actually wanted to move away from the core issues of the COP27 and sort of ask you about Indian diplomacy that you witnessed at COP27. So how do you rate India's performance at the event? What were the hits and misses? Do you think India took the right negotiating positions? Were they assertive enough? I understand that they were successful in building certain coalitions and consensus building. So as we look forward to new editions of the COP in the next year and the coming years, how would you think Indian diplomacy is going to perform? So, you know, India is a very important voice in these negotiations. It's it's a very large, it's a large economy. We're the third largest emitter of carbon at the moment. And, you know, because of those reasons, it's a voice that both developing countries and developed countries watch very closely. So India's voice is definitely an important one at these negotiations. India does align itself. It's difficult to rate and to single out India's performance because this is, this whole thing is a consensus-based procedure. And India does align itself with certain coalitions. It's part of the like-minded developing countries. It's part of the G77 group of countries. And it's part of the basic group of countries, which is Brazil, South Africa, India, and China. And so, you know, like for developing countries, A big victory for India was the establishment of this loss and damage fund. It's an issue that India did stand behind. 
I guess another, you know, notable thing is that India has established earlier this year, India established this mission life, which is lifestyle for environment. It was announced even by the Prime Minister at COP26. So basically in the cover text, the overarching decision text, India's proposal for sustainable lifestyles has made it through. And that's kind of significant because, again, it maybe puts subtle pressure on developed countries to reflect on their own consumption patterns, per capita consumption patterns, and to think about reducing them. Like the US's, you know, per capita carbon emissions is like 14.67, Norway is 6.7, India's is just 1.8. So by including this thing on sustainable lifestyles, there is also a subtle pressure to kind of reduce those per capita carbon emissions, even in rich countries. So that's another thing. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult to rate out just India's performance in that sense. Right. I think what stands out for me is India's part of a couple of coalitions with China and is negotiating similar positions despite the tensions that India-China relations have seen over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about these UNFCCC climate conferences is that you will see unusual coalitions, countries that maybe normally are like India and Pakistan too, you know, as part of G77, basic India, China. So all of these countries, I mean, in the cause for climate justice um, are very much aligned. Yeah. So that's very heartening to hear and reassuring because global leaders, countries worldwide are aligned and united in this approach. Of course, each process, like you said, is uh, tedious. It takes a lot of time to arrive at a consensus between so many divergent interests. But the fact that this has been going on successfully year after year is a positive takeaway for all of us. So thank you once again, Simran, for appearing on the show with us and discussing your experience at COP27. Sure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. And we hope to have you again in the future editions as well. Yes. Thank you and thank you for listening to All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.